Welcome to How They Get Stuff Done, where we ask successful people about the productivity habits behind their success. Side effects of listening to this show may include elevated levels of motivation, acute feelings of inspiration, and lasting improvements to your productivity. Now, here's your host, Peter Akis. Hey, folks. In this episode, I'm speaking with Brigitte Jem. Brigitte is a researcher by training. She has a PhD in sociology, and she worked at the intersection of government, universities, and industry, particularly on the topic of natural resource management in Canada. These days, however, Brigitte does something completely different. She offers a vegan meal planning service. I met Brigitte a few years ago, and she and I were both starting our online businesses. I wanted to chat and catch up with her because she left her research career and has such a different life now, running a small online business. It was particularly interesting to me because Brigitte's work involves vegan food, and I am vegan myself. Brigitte and I discuss what working in research and in a large organization was like, why you can apply productivity techniques to your cooking, and how you can optimize your cooking and nutrition with project management skills, why you should consider a plant-based diet, and much more. Enjoy the show. Hi, Brigitte. Welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. This is a wonderful... Wonderful to spend some time with you and almost for real. I'm yeah. For a while. Yeah. Almost for real. Almost for real. I think it's going to be very fun. And, and I want to start with something that you just mentioned that I didn't know about you because you said that you used to work in TV for a little while. So <laughs> uh, what's the story there? The good old days. Yeah. When I was doing my master's degree, um, I did a number of side jobs to support myself. And one of them, I was um, in science studies. You know, I did science and technology studies as an undergrad, and my master's was in sociology of science. And there was this new TV channel that started on cable TV, you know, at the time when, you know, specialized cable chains were the Mm -hmm. whole brand new thing. And that show was called The Revenge of the Nerds. I'm not kidding. Ah. And um, it was basically about all sorts of techno things. And, you know, that was year 2000 when the, you know, the bug of year 2000 was a really big concern. And my my um, specific area on the show, I had a weekly uh, commentary on the social aspects of technology or you know how technology impacts the lives of citizens, privacy, all those kinds of topics. And you know, online shopping, what kind of data they're gathering on you and stuff like that. So that was even before YouTube existed. So there's hardly any proof that I was on the show because um, they were not put on on um, any public media after that, unfortunately. So you have to take wow. my word for it. No, I believe you. Are there any poor predictions that you made that are terribly <laughs> bad in hindsight? Well, no, but I remember um, one of the things I wrote also at the time I was writing in, in different um, like technology kind of oriented publications. And I had this mm. column in this women's technology magazine, and it was about searching the internet. And most of it, you know, was about Yahoo and directories yeah. that were, you know, uh, structured directories, right? And I said, well, now there's these other little things, like, and there was AltaVista at the time oh, was yeah, in this Vista, yeah. new thing called Google, but really that's not where it's happening. Mm. <laughs> like, no, I got it wrong. You yeah. know, so um, definitely times have changed since the year 2000. Yeah, well, you know, I'm glad that you at least uh, got some exposure to, <laughs> to like the, because I think that's a fun world, right? Like being on TV, being on camera. I feel like that's like a really interesting skill to develop. Totally. Absolutely. And it's more important. I mean, with now 
it's more important than ever, right? So uh, I can I have to say I much prefer radio to TV. First of all, on TV you need to put on a ton of makeup, mm. uh, and it takes a lot of time and it's annoying. Um, but also I find on radio you have a lot more time to get into a conversation and to go in depth about a topic. If you're on TV or you know any kind of video, you're always having to show some visuals. Yeah. And I'm more of a word-oriented person, I guess. So I like this podcast medium quite a bit. So thanks thanks even more for the invite. This is awesome. Yeah, well, obviously, I like podcasting as well. That's why we're talking today. Um, yeah, with video, you know, because I, I have a YouTube channel, and I, I always feel conflicted about it. Because on the one hand, it's fun. You can reach a lot of people that way, especially on YouTube, which is like, you know, the world's second biggest search engine, right? <laughs> oh, yeah. Wait, tied into the first one. Um, but you do really have to keep things short. Like I learned this lesson the hard way. If I make videos that are longer than 15 minutes, you know, even even sometimes I'll make a seven minute video and someone will be like, so boring. <laughs> but they comment or like, you know, this was good, but way too long. And I'm like, thanks for your honest thoughts, man. I appreciate it. <laughs> so, yeah, 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 absolutely. Yeah. So yay for podcasts. It's a great revival of the spoken, spoken stories and spoken word. It really is. It really is. So, um, you worked on TV during your master's, then you went on to get a PhD. Um, so I would like to hear a little bit about what that was like. What was it like to um, get your PhD? What did you do afterwards? And why are you no longer in the field of research <laughs> or, you know, in the, in the field that you studied? Yeah, just jump in because this can be a long story if you let me go. Um, but you're, you're right. I'll just backtrack even a little bit more before my master's. As I was doing my undergrad, I was involved in student politics. And mm. my thing, some people I worked with were more focused on like tuition fee uh, battles, but my area was more academics. And we had lots of conversations about how can we engage students more in research and have more um, enriching educational experiences at all levels and things like that. And uh, I was kind of involved at the the higher level of the of my province. I was in Montreal at the time, so it was in Quebec. And um, when I left that, I, as I was working, finishing my undergrad and working in my master's, I was recruited to work in this uh, research center in the university that was uh, the center for the interdisciplinary study of science and technology or something like that. That's and a everything that was one of the short acronyms <laughs> there were much worse ones that we were working with at the time and um a lot of my work was more at advising the policymakers that previously had been on the other side of the table for me now we were more you know working with university or ministry administrators providing them information and advice and data and sometimes my my field was more qualitative. I love doing interviews. I love going in the field as an ethnographer and kind of learning about all those different ways that people live their lives. Mm -hmm. And so that was my work. And from there, I knew that in the long run, you know, I was in my mid-20s, I wanted to be in the field of research, but I did not want to be a researcher. I wanted to be involved at kind of this nexus of the policymaking Mm. in the research and you know in the long run I would have loved to be vice president research in a university or maybe um, you know a higher level official in the ministry of higher education something like that that's where well, that didn't uh, happen and it didn't happen but we'll get there and <laughs> so um, to do that to be a person in a position where you can get those kinds of jobs you need to have mm. a PhD 
Nobody will even talk to you if you're not one of them. And I knew I needed to do that. And I also knew I needed to go to a different part of the country or somewhere else because I already had two degrees from one institution. And I mean, if you start a PhD, you really have to be curious about the question that you're going to write your PhD on, right? I mean, it's not just, mm -hmm. you can't just do a PhD because there's a job at the end because you never know. Uh, so for me, I was extremely curious about how universities interact with society and more specifically about university industry government relations where it comes to the management of natural resources. Okay, so like countries like Canada make a lot of money from giving companies access to their forests and to their yeah. water and to their mining, you know, minerals. And um, there's a lot of academic work that is done in that kind of space where you're advising government or advising companies on how to go about doing those things. And because I was very concerned about environmental issues, I thought understanding better how that knowledge was created and how those professionals were trained was really important. And because I loved going outside, um, I picked forestry as a field, you know, <laughs> forest research, because the, the people doing forest research are super fun. I don't know, I just knew a few of them and they were cool people to hang out with. And, you know, their research was in the woods. Some of them worked at the lab, uh, but most of them were working in the woods and we'd get to go, you know, for, for walks in the forest. But we, really, I was helping them gather data uh, or, you know, one of the students I worked with was actually physically pulling down trees like massive 60 meter red cedars you know wow. trying to find out how much force does it take to pull it take a tree down <laughs> to understand better the interaction between wind and trees because then uh. you know trees fall down on power lines and that's really annoying for the power authority yeah. and that was his research right so i got to see all that stuff which to me was really fun and I really thoroughly enjoyed those four years, but it was clear to me that I was not going to continue as an academic having a narrow field of research, because that's really what you need to do to be successful. You need to publish, 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 yeah. to get tenure, to get grants, to, to become somebody. You need to be really narrow minded. And I'm more, you know, one inch deep and five mile wide kind more of, of a person. generalist. Yes, totally. Right. I, I enjoy seeing all those things. So um, I was extremely lucky when I finished at the same time, there was an opportunity to work at the National Research Council, uh, which has an arm here in British Columbia, where they're more focused on fuel cells and clean energy research and things like that. And my role was uh, really to be writing a lot. And mm. the researchers were not great at making arguments in favor of funding them. So really, I was I was kind of their translator, trying to translate the research they were doing and why it was important for policymakers to fund it. Somewhat stereotypical, researchers not being good at articulating things. Yeah, <laughs> and also, you know, here in Vancouver, we have a large Chinese community, and a lot of the researchers were non-native speakers of English mm. and not necessarily in touch with the political implications of their work either. Mm. So that was really my role. I worked there for a couple of years. It was super stimulating. And I was pregnant with my first child when I started seeing that the organization was going to go through a really massive restructuring. And I was like, I got to get out of here before my job gets deleted and I'm you know, pregnant up to here and nobody will hire me. And that's a reality, I think, for a lot of women that you need to make your career moves at safe times. Yeah. And 
again, good luck. There was a position open at the University of British Columbia where I had done my PhD in the same faculty. They were looking for a research manager. So somebody who would oversee the entire portfolio, support all sorts of projects and establish partnerships between different teams and policymakers and whatnot. It's totally a job for me. It was, it was my dream job, right? Yeah. And so I was, and it, the funny thing is that they hadn't even thought about me, but it was exactly my CV that was what was requested for the job. So they were like, oh yeah, of course, we're hiring you. And so I got the job and that was awesome. I had my first child. I went on mad leave. They were super helpful and tolerant. Cool about it. Yeah. I mean, they, they have to be because it's Canada, but uh, they were really <laughs> flexible in, in so many ways. So after mad leave, I kept working there for a couple of years and um, my husband was finishing his training as a physician. And he got an opportunity to go to Stanford University in California, in the Bay Area, um, to subspecialize. And it was the kind of opportunity that you cannot say no to. There was, mm -hmm. like, for him. We, we had to go, absolutely. And yeah. I mean, even for me, like, do you want to go live in the Bay Area for a year? Yeah. Um, but I, yeah, also I was going to ask you about that. I mean, Because <laughs> sure. I lived there as well, and I was like, hey, you know. <laughs> oh, I know. How did that I mean, it's such a lovely thing, right? So, um, it was just for one year, but I didn't, I was like, I just got this dream job and they've been so nice to me with my mat leave and everything, you know, come on, mm. like uh, we got to make this work. And my boss again was so sweet. She allowed me to go uh, part-time on my job so that we could hire somebody to kind of backfill in for me locally a little bit. So I had this year of remote work before pandemic times, I had some practice and um, I was working from home in California. I was, again, super lucky to find a daycare spot for my daughter. And every six weeks or so I was commuting back and forth between San Francisco and Vancouver. It really takes only five hours door to door hmm. if you're flying and you have a kid on your back. Because if you have a kid on your back, you go in the express lane <laughs> at the security. Uh, right, so right, that right, was right. awesome. And yeah. um, it was just an amazing year, right? Um, but I had a few epiphanies when I was there. And I'm getting to the crux of your question is why are you not there anymore in the research world? On the one hand, I was feeling a little bit guilty about all the flying, right? Mm. Um, Understandable. I mean, it was not even flying that much. I know people who are on planes like three times a week. But for me, it was just like beyond what was acceptable. But again, there was that like, I really want this opportunity, but you know, you're going to have to pay for it somehow. Yeah. And um, that was one thing. The other thing was California was in a major drought. Mm. And the whole time we were there, it rained for like five hours over the course of a year. You know, it had not rained in two years. It was extremely dry. And I remember running in the forest, you know, in the, in the mountains close to, to Palo Alto and thinking at any time this brush could erupt in a fire. Yeah. You know, it was that dry. It was tinder. And it really started, you know, on the one hand, I was guilty with the flying of, of contributing to this kind of climate change situation that made those droughts possible. And right. on the other hand, I could very well become a victim to it in, you know, unfortunate circumstances. And I, I was in this tormented space a little bit of, uh, about the environment and what we can do about it. And really the research we were doing and the same thing with the research I was doing previous or supporting previously I didn't feel that it was going to make a dent mm. in, in the, the, the massive scale of the problems that we were faced with as a civilization, right? And it was like, this is really interesting research. 
but really like it's not going to bring us anywhere where we need to be anytime like soon enough to really make a difference and although i have the utmost respect for basic research and i, I see it as really important personally i just felt like i couldn't be a part of that anymore also because really we know what we need to do like we know what the solutions are to a lot of those problems but we're just not willing to implement those solutions for for electoral reasons or policy reasons or whatever reasons they are we're we're reluctant and even for ourselves like if i tell you you have to reduce your personal you know environmental footprint by 80 percent, you're going to be like oh you know do i really want to make those changes in my life totally understandable right. right but we know what the changes are and we need to get onto it and personally i felt i needed to be like right in mm. and as my second child was born and i had another mat leave you know coming up uh, after we came back from California, it gave me an opportunity to say, okay, I'm going to take a few steps back and see what I can do personally. And obviously it's going to be more small scale than what can be done um, through those like multi-million dollar partnerships that I used to be involved with. Right. But at least I will feel like I'm actually, you know, digging the right hole, <laughs> you know, that I'm actually making a real difference every day and uh, that was also more possible in in our life that's an important dynamic i think to mention for whoever is having children that may be listening to this um, we came back from california my husband had finished his subspecialty starting a new job he was working like very long hours plus he had a big commute and all of a sudden our childcare situation was a lot more complicated and that's where you start asking yourself those questions of, you know, how much mental anxiety or mental angst do I want to put into this like mm. juggling of, you know, the, my young children that I want to take care of, my husband's start of his career, my job that I think is important, but it is at, at the same time bothering me in terms of, you know, consider contemplating the impact of it. Yeah. And I really, I really needed to take a step back from it um, and not constantly feel on the edge you know we could have hired a nanny i guess at home we could have afforded it but is that really what i wanted like that's not why i had kids for um and being in british columbia the the daycare uh, services are a lot less available than they are in other jurisdictions so clearly there were like macro structural factors that influenced my personal life but it was just the right thing to do at that time to take a step back and see can I start a little business, do some freelance kind of work that would feel more meaningful to me? Yeah. And no, eventually and I, I landed here. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no. And I definitely want to ask you um, how you ended up having the business that you currently have. But um, let's backtrack a little bit. So you mentioned that you were concerned about the impact, you know, that your um, research or, or, you know, what's going to have on the world. And so... Um, let me ask you a little bit about that period. What what kind of work were you actually doing when you were there in the Bay Area? Say, what kind of work were you actually doing? Like, what what you know, if we like literally watching you on camera, you know, yeah, like what, yeah. do you, what are you spending your days doing? So when I was uh, by the time I was in the Faculty of Education, my work was a mix of different things. Part of it was, you know, just supporting basic infrastructure that every research organization needs, like having a proper directory of researchers, right? That mm -hmm. as at the faculty level, that was something that was very 
boring, if I can even say, but that can be quite mm. challenging to pull together, to have this resource where outsiders can search for different kinds of expertise that they would want to work with, or even prospective grad students that will be looking for a supervisor. Yeah. They need to be able to do a search by keyword. We had right. you know, a terrible platform previously. It needed to be upgraded, so I needed to get 150 faculty members to get their ducks in a row to you know, provide us with information and have a technology solution. So that's yeah. that's kind of not exactly, you know, awe-inspiring work. Uh, but on the same token, I had the faculty members that we were supporting because they were pulling together um, a Canada-wide partnership for enhancing physical education, right? And so they were PE teachers that were getting together with different new approaches to make PE more meaningful for kids or to in, you know increase the kinds of educational benefits that it could get from that. Um, and so I would be more on the grant facilitation side where they would be writing a grant and we would be supporting them in creating the partnerships, pulling the money together from different sources. Mm. So that was that was really stimulating and you know sometimes you get the grant, most of the times you don't, right? But that, right. that happened. Um, and also even, you know, supporting the organization of international events where we'd have some faculty members that were authorities in whatever, educational psychology, and they were organizing an international conference. So we'd be supporting um, some innovative ways for them to get together. So that was on a day-to-day basis, it was super diverse. Um, and I would get to, to touch on all these different fields of education research, um, and that was all very interesting. But I have to say one thing that an annoyed me a little bit. Uh, I mean, we're in Vancouver, which is one of the most beautiful cities on earth. It's an extremely expensive place to live. And so we have uh, terrible inequalities, in, including housing inequalities. We have a high level of you know child poverty, educational inequalities. What were we doing about that? Yeah, some faculty members were doing some work in that area, but really, mm. again, not making a massive difference that I felt. And it's not faculty members' role necessarily to do those massive differences. But I, I felt, again, we were quite remote from the heart of change that we needed more as a, as a society. And so this feels to me like a very organizational kind of work, right? So you're embedded in an organization that works in a certain way. I'm sure you had lots of meetings at that time, for example, oh, right? Meetings and email. You know, the, the last year I was there, and I'm sure it's worse now, but I think I received 15 to 20,000 emails and I sent over like 9,000 myself. And, you know, you also you couldn't even have a meeting without like, sending an email five minutes before the meeting to remind people to come to the meeting because yeah. everybody was a bit, you know, distracted. And if you didn't send them a reminder, then they just wouldn't come. Right. And, you know, there was, yeah, meetings, meetings and emails were two really big parts of, of the job and not my favorite for sure. Yeah. And frankly, it sounds like an exhausting way to live as well. I mean, I definitely lived the kind of life where there were a decent amount of meetings. So, you know, back when I was a corporate consultant, it wasn't that bad, you know, um, partly wasn't that bad because I just started resisting meetings. So I made it deliberately difficult for people to invite me to meetings. And I made my displeasure known when they kept me around in meetings longer than I needed to. And when you start being a little annoying like that, people really like stop wanting to invite you to quite as many meetings. <laughs> so um, to me, you were the enemy because I was the meeting organizer because mm. I was the one trying to pull all these people together. And rightfully, faculty members were often resisting that because yeah. they wanted to be more dedicated to 
knowledge creation, right? And we had this mandate from the organization, you know, the university as a corporation to try to get them to work together more. So definitely, yeah, you're totally right that it was it was mentally exhausting. Um, and the, the psychic satisfaction that I got out of it was not on par with the amount of effort to just survive the day-to-day there. Yeah, and so and so that brings me to a very interesting contrast with with the business that you run now, um, the work that you do now, right? Because these days, what you do is you have a vegan meal planning service that you offer to folks. I mean, may, I'll let you describe it in your own words. Maybe you could do a better job than I just did. Um, and so that's that's quite different, right? So you, you've got your own little business that you're running, um, where you're directly helping people. You know, kind, kind of like the way that I'm that I'm doing it. I mean, different topic, but you know, similarly. Um, and that's just so different from being in a large organization which has goals and you're kind of part of it and you're trying to, you know, move the organization's goals forward. Um, you're not, you know, working with the team, right? It's just, it's just you. Um, so you also talked about there was a lack of kind of purpose that you felt or maybe you felt like your impact wasn't big enough and, and you mentioned climate change already. So obviously that's related to, to being plant-based, being vegan, which which I am as well, by the way, just just for people listening if they didn't know this uh, right now. So one of the reasons I wanted to talk about to, to talk to Bridget is because um, I'm vegan myself and so very interesting to me what kind of work she does. So um, I want to hear how that transition went uh, you know so so you're there and you're or maybe you're back in canada at this point and you're and you're realizing mm, this is not quite it you know how do you go from there to where you are now where you're running the business that you do it's um it's interesting you mentioned you know working with a lot of people because um clearly that's something that when i had my second child and i was debating you know what am i going to do with myself at the very beginning, I was working with um, a colleague whom I had met when I was in grad school. I was in doing my PhD in education. She was doing some environmental studies research, and I really wanted to work with her. It was quite wonderful. But very early on, as I had a newborn on my arms, I realized I can't do this. And I, I know to this day, and Stephanie, if you're listening, I want you to know we could have done like amazing things together that would be even <laughs> better than what I can do on my own. But it, it, it was, I, I could not handle the coordination costs at that time. Like, mm. had that, that time that we would, we were spending, you know, talking on our ideas and, and trying to get there, I just could not, I had so little time with the newborn and my daughter that was whatever, tree and change at the time. You know, I had, when my daughter was at preschool for like two and a half hours in the morning and my son was napping for like an hour while I was walking about, you know, or I could sit at a coffee shop and rock the stroller with my foot while he was sleeping. And so I could maybe jot a few notes about what, you know, kind of business projects I had. So my Mm. bandwidth was so narrow that I just could not work with other people. Uh, I had to find something that I could do all by myself without being part of an organization, without having to be in meetings. Right. Without, and, and that's, that was just a survival mechanism for me. Like I wanted to remain in that, in that space, remain active, find something that I I thought was meaningful to do with my skills and and my knowledge. Uh, But I, I, I just could not handle physically being tied into obligations with others. And what I knew I wanted to do at that time was I knew I wanted to do something related to the environment. And I knew it would have to do with habits, how individuals can transform their habits to basically be more environmentally friendly in the areas of food, transportation, 
and stuff, you know, like consuming less, buying less things. And Mm. I think having moved to California and back in one year had also given me some like guilt m- m- not so much as like more of a minimalist mindset like ah, i want to okay. you know declutter my life so that i can pick up and go and then come back because it's really mm. traumatizing <laughs> every time you move especially with children and you have all that stuff to deal with like you can't just leave it there you need to deal with your stuff and it's a bit of, of a slavery right uh like we're, we're slaves to our stuff at least as much as mm. our stuff serves us and so I, I was thinking about integrating those three aspects and we, you know, talking with friends in California, you know, could we build an app? How could we incentivize or gamify, you know, environmentally friendly behaviors and stuff like that? And Great, after, California, build an app. <laughs> totally. <laughs> you know, what are you going to do? Build an app. It's a solution to everything. What is it about? I don't know. I don't know, but it's going to be an app. <laughs> we'll figure it out. And after kicking those ideas around for, you know, almost a year, and again, you know, working... 30 minutes here and 45 minutes there. Yeah. I came to the conclusion that it was not a viable business model, that nobody would pay for that. You know, maybe mm. we could do something, but for me, it was also clear that I did not want to put money into it. You know, if you're paying to do it, it's a hobby. So I wanted it to pay for itself at mm. the very least and, you know, generate income. I also was motivated by this idea that I could generate more money to donate to certain organizations that I thought were very worthy organizations to support but that we didn't necessarily have the option of supporting with our you know family budget but i was like okay can i raise some money through this as well Mm. and um that's when i concluded that food was an area where people will pay money for services around food there's a broad range of service people need to eat they need to eat at least you know for most of us two or three times a day sometimes up to six times a day if they're more like athletic and they will pay for guidance around that and i thought okay that's an area where i have a possible viable business model and that's where i didn't know exactly for sure at first it was called smart vegan kitchen and i was trying to basically optimize using project management skills how we could um, streamline you know food eating yeah all the all those things which were also i think those were challenges i was meeting in my own life as a new aspiring vegan i thought it was very overwhelming so i was like okay how can we streamline this whole thing and can we get people to pay for it and i started just doing a few free free downloadable products that proved like very popular with that it's a very niche market really you know um but the the people who were in that space were very supportive i was like okay i think i'm onto something and that's when i decided to really dedicate myself to that so by then it must have been about 2017 or something like that when i really started focusing on food and and building a business around it yeah and so here's where peter has to collect his thoughts a little bit because there's so many so many interesting things here because that's around about the same time that i started developing my own business first of all um that's around about the, nah, i guess it was 2018 when i decided to go vegan um and I just have a thousand questions, so so let's just uh, let's just start somewhere. Um, so so full disclosure, by the way, my, my girlfriend and I just signed up for your meal planning service um, like a week or two ago, and we're loving it so far. So for anybody who's listening, um, we're gonna we're gonna share a link to that in the show notes, and, and Brigitte is gonna tell tell us a little bit more about it. But it's super easy. You just get like a PDF, and it's like buy these things and do these things, and you do it like once a week with maybe small. Um, I don't know, touch-ups, what, what are we going to call it, during the week, and you just have super yummy vegan meals all the time, and it's amazing. Um, I'm so glad you love it. It's um, it's life-changing once you get in the groove of doing it, I think. 
Yeah, and and you know, especially I like what you mentioned about it being sort of like a productive thing to do, like uh, bringing the project management skills to it. Because I always have this feeling like I don't want to spend a lot of time on food. I like food, but I'm not a foodie, you know. And so for me, food is very functional. Like it just I just want healthy food, and I want it in my body enough. And like because I you know like half a year ago started doing some weightlifting. Um, I got to make sure that I, you know, get enough calories in, that I get enough protein in, um, which may- maybe you can talk about that a little bit because I feel like once you mention the word protein and vegan, people have opinions <laughs> that are wrong. <laughs> so maybe, maybe we can... I've never heard that before. I don't know what you're talking really, about. <laughs> really, 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 really. Because that's a big misconception that you can somehow oh, yes. not eat enough protein, which is ridiculous. Um, and, so, and so I really like um, your framing of this as a productivity thing almost, right? It's like, uh, it's overwhelming to like have to think about my food all the time i want to eat healthy whether you're vegan or not like just just having healthy homemade food all the time can take a lot of time can be really overwhelming and you were like you know what i'm going to take a project management approach to this um so why, why don't we start there how did you decide like hey you know i'm gonna i'm gonna turn this into a business and you said you started making some free things but how, how did how did you go from free to business yeah um good question when i uh the free things were things I had done for myself. And I was, as I was struggling mm. with, you know, because, you know, really you can eat perfectly good, nutritious vegan food every single day by having, I don't know, brown rice and beans and lots of greens, right? And a bit of yeah. orange vegetables in there. Um, the truth is that most people in the Western world these days are desiring a more diverse diet. They yeah. don't want to eat the same thing five, six, seven times a week. Raising my hand here. People can't see this, but I'm I'm raising my hand. (laughs) Totally, right? Um, But they're not necessarily willing to put in the time. I mean, go back, I don't know, 400 years or even, you know, my grandmother, that's a party trick of mine. My grandmother had 17 kids. Wow. Okay. (laughs) I like to say that. People go like, what? And um, my other grandmother had 11. And they were not cooking like seven different meals every week for their families, you know, or think of, I don't know, um, Italian nanas and Indian grandmothers cooking for their families. You know, they have two or three different things and those things come back all the time. But we're really in a culture that wants a diversity at the dinner table, especially the dinner table. And that is what makes dinner just this like nightmare thing to decide, you know, what am I, you know, and it comes back every bloody day, every day we have to cook dinner again. And so I was really struggling with that at the same time as struggling with all the new vegan, new parent thing, right? You want to make sure that the food is nutritious. You have a bunch of different people with different preferences that you need to feed. You don't want to spend all day in the kitchen. You don't want it to cost millions of dollars. Because if you have millions of dollars, you just hire somebody to do it for you. Get a chef. You know, get a chef and then it's done. But the reality is that most of us don't have right. that money. And so we're not doing that. And we still want those really good meals. And we don't necessarily want to rely on so-called processed food. And it's not that processed food is necessarily like bad with a capital B, but I mean, it is quite greasy and quite salty and and it just doesn't feel quite as good as from a health perspective, I think, than, than yeah. having just plain old beans. And um, I was I was really struggling. Like those first two years were really hard. I would spend hours trying to decide, you know, making a meal plan. And then even once the meal plan was done, I was, I was struggling with it. And one of the things that I had been doing for myself for uh, time management were these like planning templates. So I kind of started 
the, the original idea was not so much project management as it was Mad Libs. I don't know if you've seen those before. You know, you have to fill in the blanks and tick some boxes to make some yep. funny, usually funny um, little stories to read. And mm -hmm. I made Mad Lib meal plans. And I was like, okay, <laughs> on Monday, it's going to be some kind of a pasta dish. And you can have this or this or this kind of sauce. I don't know, like tomato mm. pesto or like a creamy white sauce. You will use, and they were seasonal. So if it's in the spring, you might want to choose between, I don't know, asparagus or some kind of cabbage or mm. some leftover root vegetables from the fall. And you will have um, a, a bonus like ingredient topping at the end. And so I would just print out the meal plan template and I would tick the boxes and it would give me some kind of a different meal plan every week without having to, to think. think from scratch again, right? Yep. So there was a similar structure with some variation, combinatorials <laughs> involved, right? And also a big part of that was using what I already had because I was really tired of throwing away vegetables. You know, we'd go to the farmer's market and like everything looks good, right? So you spend $100 on really nice, amazing produce and then it rots, right, yeah. in your fridge because you didn't get to cook it. So right. I would make a point of integrating whatever I had and kind of fill in the blanks with the stuff you have. Mm. And that was that was quite cool. I, I like that. But then I thought, you know, I can't really sell those. They were not that fancy. But I, I used them to collect emails over the course of my first, I don't know, year or two. Um, and then as I was looking around what the other options were on the vast internet, I found out about a, f a few meal planning services and mostly those were not at all vegan. There's one that I know of that pre-exists me, um, but for the most part, the, that, that's vegan. Uh, for the most part, there were a bunch of them that were not vegan that existed. And there's basically two yeah. trends. One of them is a basically computer-generated meal plan where you take in a few options. You know, I don't want gluten. I want to have three different meals, something like that. And yeah. it spits out a meal plan that's different from last week's meal plan based on recipes that they have sucked vacuumed off the internet ah, with the yeah. recipe tagging codes, right? Um, so when you write a blog post with a recipe, you use some, some code to, to format it properly. Google picks that up. And so those apps were, are collecting those recipes and generating meal plans from them. Mm. That's one way. There's, then there's the artisan, you know, handmade with love way, which is that I would be writing the recipes. And that's what I chose to do. So I picked a number of recipes based on the season. I would think, okay, I need to focus on, you know, maximum two grains and two types of beans to make it more efficient. But how can I bring as much variety as possible and as much efficiency as possible? Yeah. And I think it started, um, I started with custom plans. So I recruited a half dozen clients for a summer for three months they paid you know a little more but really they didn't pay very much money and I create I had this you know basic plan and I customized it for all of them over the course of those three months and they were super happy for the reasons you say is that they didn't have to decide what was for dinner I know <laughs> and uh, you know even even I I follow my meal plans and sometimes what's on the meal plan is not necessarily my most favorite dish in the world sure but it doesn't matter, <laughs> you know, it's, it's good, it's good enough. Yeah. And it's, it's different from what I had yesterday. It brings in a different range of nutrients, different kinds of whole grains, different beans, whatever. And it's, it's perfectly tasty and it works. So those clients were happy and based on their feedback, I launched a first founders 
edition of the meal plans. And I created that first year of um, what was called at the time the smart vegan meal plans. But now they're, they ended up being called the vegan family meal plans because I'm just terrible with names. You know, <laughs> people come up with really fancy, fun names that are evocative. And I just call things what they are. These are vegan meal plans and they're made for families. So they're yeah. vegan family meal plans. There you go. And, um, and that's the story of, of how it started. I found out that some people just really needed that and they were willing to pay for it. Yeah, no, and, and I think that's awesome. I, I love how you were basically like solving your own problem, right? But then end up helping other people, which is how so many businesses get started. Um, there's a lot of things I want to hear from you about how you actually do the work that comes with your business. But before we go there, I'm going to use the opportunity that we have here on a platform where there's some people listening um, to briefly do a little vegan myth uh, dispelling. Um, and I, I will let you do that because I, I know the facts, but you know, you are more of an ambassador here than I am. Um, but, but first of all, just a quick summary. Um, I'll share why I am vegan or plant-based, whatever you want to call it. Um, just for people not to be confused. It's not the same thing as vegetarian, right? We do not consume animal products. <laughs> totally. Um, there are different levels that you can go to. Um, I once heard, for example, that apparently they use some lice to produce red dye for certain products or something. Yeah. So like, I don't go to that level because I find it totally impractical for daily life, but like I will not buy leather products anymore, you know? Mm -hmm. um, but, but it's mostly about food, honestly, for me. And so why do I do this? Partly um, just because of animal welfare, you know, like ethical reasons. I just, mm -hmm. there's just absolutely, absolutely no reason why we should be mass murdering animals. Um, you know, it was crazy because a couple of years ago, my girlfriend and I were doing a road trip in California and we see this big truck driving by and it has a bunch of pigs Ugh. in it. Um, and I hate that. Yeah. And like, I don't really see this very often because I don't live in a rural area. So like for me, this was quite new, you know, when you look at a pig in the eye, sorry to interrupt, but when you look at a pig in the eye, you know, and I have friends who do that witnessing, you know, they go by the, the, the pig slaughterhouses and they wait for the trucks to come and they, they look at the pigs in the eye Yeah, and they really look familiar. Like they have, they have the, you know, pig skin is very similar to human skin. The, you know, pig organs are extremely similar. And you look at them and they're just like, you know, that they know, you know, and it's not like they're going to heaven, you know, they're going to hell. It's, yeah. I, I can't, it's, it's really hard for me to see those trucks. Now I never used to, I'm, I was born on a farm right? and my, my parents actually had a pig farm when I was born. Uh, but I, when you think about it, it's, yeah. when you see something, you can't unsee it, I find. Yeah. And so for me, it's very much like an animal welfare reason, you know, choice not to, not to um, consume any animal products, but there's also environmental reasons, which, which are for me sort of equally important at this point, honestly, because, oh yes. Um, uh, this one thing that I learned is just like consuming animal products and particularly meats, right? It's just like horrendous in terms of the environmental impact that it has. Like even if you completely don't care about animal welfare, like if you would like to have a nice planet to live on a couple of decades from now, like it's very much in your interest um, to be uh, plant-based. And so, so I would like to ask you, like, what are your reasons for being vegan? I really came to this for environmental reasons. And that mm -hmm. was part of my process in California with the whole, you know, the flying guilt and the, the drought that came to me as a really personal realization of both the, the cause and, and the yeah. effects of the problem. And, you know, it's a complete coincidence that I had this friend from like somebody that was in a same, 
association as I was at some point, you know, some like the, and a, a Facebook acquaintance really that um, published this book um, in French that was about the environmental impacts of the food we have. And it's not just about animals, but that was a part of it. And I read that. And as I just mentioned, I was raised on a farm. My, my grandfather had a dairy farm that then my parents operated for a few years. And then my parents had pigs and my dad, my dad always loved animals. Um, and I, th I think he became scared of the big animals because when big animals, you know, a pig or a cow, they're pretty big. And if they kick you or they run into you, they can cause quite a bit of damage. And my, my father, I think, became quite concerned about that. And then my parents started growing plants instead. They, they, oh. they built a bunch of greenhouses and started a plant nursery. And they didn't have animals again. But, you know, for, for us, animals were working creatures. They were not there for, you know, even pets. We didn't really have pets. We had a guard dog. Uh, hmm. So I was not an animal lover. Like, I don't see a, a chicken and think of cuddling with a chicken or anything hmm. like that. But like you, you know, I started thinking... You know, this is a lot of like, there are a lot of animals out there that we're raising and it's creating a lot of environmental damage. And I became more sensitive to the um, ethical arguments, but it wasn't quite yet driven home necessarily to me at that stage. So I really decided to just cook vegan at home. So that was in 2013, 2014. I, I went completely vegan at home. I was not, if somebody else was cooking, you know, if my husband wanted to grill a salmon, that was fine, but I was not going to do it anymore. Yeah. And I wasn't cooking any of that. And I was like, we'll just have to figure out what to eat. Um, but the, the true big change where I decided, so I was, I guess, plant-based or vegan at home. And when my son was born at the same time, I, when you have a newborn and you're breastfeeding, you spend a lot of time sitting on the couch <laughs> <laughs> and the newborn falls asleep on you. And then you're on the couch and you don't want the newborn to wake up because it's your only, you know, private moment in the day. Right, right. Your resting so you, time. <laughs> you know, you're taking a break. So you do a lot of reading on your phone. And so I had started making more, you know, vegan connections on social media and things like that. And I, I was reading more into the animal rights sphere and, you know, I had this little baby on me and I was thinking, what if somebody came and took my baby away and plugged me to a milk machine, you know, yep. to get my milk. And then they re-inseminated me again to, you know, keep the milk production going and then took my baby away again. And I, ha I remember a friend of mine said, oh, you know, we've had cows for a bit and uh, they're really quite stupid and they don't care about, you know, taking their babies away. I was like, well, if you had taken away like three babies from me, I probably wouldn't care about the fourth one. You know, by that stage, you're desensitized to it, right? Mm. It, it, to me, it became so obvious that we were really abusing, you know, females and their babies. Uh, and, and you look at the same thing for, for laying hands where we're harnessing, you know, we've bred hens to the point that they produce, you know, 300 eggs a year. And that's a huge toll on their on their health and their bodies to the point that you know they collapse and and die and that's why they have to be thrown away and made into dog food right or something like that and i just you know as i as i had my own baby in my arms i was like i can't do this anymore i can't be hypocritical and and pretend that it's all right and do it to others i yeah. wouldn't want it to be done to me and i know you know cow, cows are not that smart you know they don't write phds but you know so what? Um, you know, there's a lot of people that are are physically or mentally um, not as able as others, and we still don't like break them and kill them. That's ridiculous. So yeah. 
Uh, that was really for me the moment when I decided I'll call myself vegan and I will have to live by it. And that's a really scary thing to do uh, because the vegan police is out there. You know, you were talking about different levels. Yeah. And I'm, I'm, I'm controlling myself now, but I used to live in fear of the vegan police. You know, they're going to turn up and see me at somewhere doing something that is not vegan that they don't even know about. Um, you know, and and that's. It can. It's been business destroying for some people, right? And like you really have, you really feel like you have to be on your guard all the time. Um, now I think I've grown more mature into my knowledge and understanding of the different things I'm doing and not doing. But I, I think I'm a, you know, high enough level vegan. That I'm not afraid anymore. <laughs> to avoid um, the police. Yeah, I'm confident enough in my in my process, right? Um, but it was a way for me to call my business vegan family kitchen was also a way to keep myself accountable for sticking with this. Um, yeah. I was like, you know, if I'm going to call my business this, I'm going to have to figure out how to make it work because it has to work. There's no other way. And I'm not condemning people who are eating animals. Um, for example, if, uh, you know, lots of places in the world, they, they don't have the choice to right. subsist on animals. Yeah. But all those of us who don't have, who have plenty of other options because we live in developed countries that have, you know, privileged access to the global food system. I feel that we should do our part and, you know, drastically cut back so that those who don't have a choice then can still have their, you know, their animals and small level of emissions associated with that. But, you know, for us, it's absolutely unnecessary and frankly, completely unhealthy as well at the scale at, at which we're doing it today. So Yeah. And so, you know, animal rights reasons, ethical reasons uh, for the planet in so many different ways, being vegan or plant-based, whatever you want to call it, is good. Um, I do want to hear more about your business. Just one more thing, because you just mentioned it, you know, the health implications of being vegan. It's something that I hear people about all the time, and I had to do a little research, you know, like something that I like to tell people is like, I used to love hamburgers. I mean, I was one of those oh, guys yeah. that was like, you know, where um, I used to like study near Philly, so I was a big cheesesteak fan. I ate a lot of <laughs> cheesesteaks in my life. <laughs> yeah, so, yeah, yeah. And they were tasty, you know, I'm not going to deny it. Um, but the reason that I'm vegan now is just because I, I got more information, you know. And so and so one thing that a lot of people started asking me about, you know, two or three times because they get bored quickly. Um, it's like, oh, are you going to get enough protein? Oh, are you going to get enough vitamin B12? And so, like, this is something that bugs me um, because, like, I pay so much attention now to, like, the nutrients that I put in my body. I'm healthier than, like, you know, in terms of getting complete nutrition than like 99% of people, you know what totally. I'm saying? And so absolutely it's infuriating. <laughs> it's yeah, like and you can ask them, questions. you know, what about your fiber? Are you getting enough fiber? You know, yeah. most people are not getting enough fiber and that's way worse than protein deficiency. You know, nobody in North America has protein deficiency unless they're trying to be a breatharian, you know, they survive on air and water. Yeah. You know, nobody else has protein deficiency really. Yeah. And so is this something that, that people ask you about a lot? Do you get a lot of questions about like, you know what, your meals look great. Like I want to be vegan or I'm trying to be vegan, but you know, is it healthy? You know, will I get enough protein? That's um, interesting because, and I'm in Vancouver on the West coast, which means that a lot of people are quite sensitized already to this. Yeah. And I've made it, I mean, if somebody asks me, I answer, but um, my focus is not on educating or um, uh, bringing awareness to people. And I'm so thankful to, you know, the activists, both on the uh, animal rights side and also on the health side that are doing all the education that's required. I've been really careful of not positioning myself as a nutrition 
uh, expert of any kind, yep. right? I'm, I'm a sociologist, right? And uh, <laughs> so I've, I've assessed, so as a sociologist of science, I'm super interested in, in looking at the literature. And there's yeah. somebody out there, I don't know if you know him, called Dr. Michael Greger. He has a website called nutritionfacts.org. He is the number one nerd of nutrition in the world. Like he has a team of people that looks at every single peer-reviewed nutrition-related scientific article that's published mm -hmm. every year. It's something like 200,000 articles. They like wow. skim the whole thing and then they identify, you know, which pieces are meaningful scientific pieces and they go in, in you know, in depth about them. He's published a book called How Not to Die, where he analyzes <laughs> the nutritional aspects of the 13 ma major causes of death in the United States. It's a great and, title, and, though. That's it's like, <laughs> yeah, exceedingly it's a, clickbaity, but very good. <laughs> well, it works and it doesn't work because I think it's turned some people off, like by being. Oh, they don't want to know about it. Yeah, something like that. Or it, it seems like um, some people, agree, you know, say that he's guilting people who are not doing the right thing. Anyway, mm. but he's just like he's not very emo emotionally sensitive. He's just like, these are the facts. You do whatever you want. You know, yeah. the, this is the amount of exercise you're supposed to get to be a healthy person. And I, I think it's something like 90 minutes of moderate exercise a day. And he says, all the government guidelines will tell you, well, go for 30 minutes, you know, yeah. that, but that's because they're, they're aiming for what they think is possible. But I'm telling you what the research says is best for you. You know, do whatever you want. You have the information. And so yeah. um, I, I so appreciate, you know, the amount of effort that they put in it. What I do notice um, is that uh, what a lot of people do ask to me more in casual conversation is, uh, don't you find it restrictive, you know, to eat vegan food? I'm like, actually, like, I eat so many more things today. And I think you were mentioning that than, you know... I did ever before and you know jackfruit how many people eat jackfruit on a regular basis you know how right. many people I eat mean, quinoa eat barley only, you know <laughs> yeah. you know at least like you even know what it is whereas yeah. I never knew what jackfruit was you know 10 years ago um you know quinoa barley you know oats rye and buckwheat and all these different grains amaranth you know that I wasn't eating before uh, all sorts of different vegetables and, and all those things. So, I mean, it's possible to be a junk food vegan and to eat only right. like processed soy and rice, maybe black beans on a good day, right? Impossible but the, the, burgers. Totally, right? I mean, yeah, if you look even some of the, the new, there's a couple of, of uh, vegan burger companies here in BC that are local, that are kind of small. But they make like burgers out of real food, like out of mm. beans and, and a little bit of, you know, wheat gluten. They're amazing and they're really yep. burgery, right? Um, so there's so many options and so many more diverse nutrients to me. That's the main thing. Protein, you know, I, I hear it as a joke, but less and less <laughs> as, a real, as a real concern, except from people that, you know, do work out or they're more looking into performance. And I think, you know, maybe, yeah, they need to pay a little more attention to that. But if you're not going to compete and like weightlifting competitions yeah you know i think following a i don't want to say a common sense diet but really that's what it is right eating in a commonsensical way and i mean vegetables are great but they're more expensive so it's it's all there's also a balance there right and, and balancing your whole grains and how many vegetables you're eating and legumes and things like that but really uh there's really no problem the one thing though that's interesting you mentioned the b12 People, most people don't know that the B12 in meat comes from B12 that's added to the meat's feed. So they're getting the supplements 
And the reason is just that there's no more B12 available in the soil, right? And so they have to supplement animals. And that's the only reason why there's B12 in meat. And that's something I, I try to mention to all my new clients is, you know, even if you're not fully vegan, please do supplement with B12. Right. Um, the consequences of not doing it are um, possibly devastating, even for omnivores. Uh, my my yeah. father, I'm quite sure, had a, a B12 absorption issue. And it's, you know, once you notice the damage, sometimes it's too late to undo it. So don't forget to take your B12. Yeah. End of the PSA. <laughs> nice PSA. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Um, the way I solve this, by the way, is like I'm certainly not competing in any weightlifting or anything like that. You know, I'm like a beginner, but... Um, I just take like some, some, um, they, they've got these nice meal replacement shakes. Um, the yeah. ones I like, there's a brand called Jimmy Joy. They do such a great job. They've got these things called Plenty Shakes. Tastes super good, super healthily made, totally vegan. Add a little water. You know, I have one every day. It has all the nutrients, whatever minerals and vitamins you could possibly need. They just put it all in there. It's like, it's super easy. It takes me barely any time. Um, super efficient way, super low impact on the planet. Anyway, anyway. That's and nobody gets hurt. That's the best part. Right? Nobody gets you, hurt. Nobody gets hurt. Nobody suffers. You just, you know, enjoy your drink. There yeah, you go. But, but that's enough evangelizing. <laughs> um, okay. I, I want to hear a little bit about how you run your business, right? So um, uh, the work involved in your business, one of the things you got to do is you got to make these meal plans, right? <laughs> um, because you send a new meal plan every week. Um, and I'm curious, how do you do this? Do you batch them, for example? Do you create like a month's work? Uh, worth of meal plans in one sitting do you do a little bit of work on them every day what's your uh, what's your routine there i'm so glad you're asking me that question and i would like to ask you how many recipes do you think the average household let's call it that couple family how many recipes do people need to feed themselves dinner every night for a year how many different recipes do you think i mean it depends on the variety that you want right but like uh... yeah that's a good point um I've figured that 260 is probably going to carry me for the next 10 years, 10 years mm. or so. You know, when I started the meal plans, exactly as you say, I was creating new meal plans every second week. So the meal plans go by two weeks at a time because I think it's more efficient than just one week. Yeah. That's something that's kind of unique about my plans. And as I finished my first year, so like that must have been like the end of 2018 kind of thing. I started the 2019 year and because I have a big focus on seasonal, I went back, you know, oh, yeah, what, what did I put a seasonal last year, right? Because it's going to be the same seasonal ingredients this year. And I was like, oh, that recipe was good. Well, that was good, too. Well, that was that was really good. So why, why, why would I not use those again? And of course, um, I didn't want to cheat my customers by telling them those were new meal plans um, and with, you know, the same old recipes as before. And right. I came to the conclusion that basically one year worth of dinner recipes so 260 recipes, 26 plans times 10 recipes. That's really enough. And I found that myself, I was just wanting to replay last year's meal plan. And, you know, it's been long enough that it's not like, oh, we had this last week. That's boring. Right. right. I mean, often my husband is like, oh, we've never had this before. You've never made this recipe. I was like, actually, like, I've made yes. it last year <laughs> and the year before, <laughs> you know, and that was when I decided what I'm selling is... Um, there is a subscription service aspect because it does get delivered by email, but I'm yep. not going to keep on creating brand new meal plans. And it's right. exhausting. You know, that same anxiety about decision making that I had for my own family when I was doing my meal plans, it, it was also part of, of creating meal plans for my clients, right? And it's yeah. even the stakes are even higher because it's not just me, it's everybody. And as I looked at the meal plans I had created, I was like, well, they're 
they're good. They're, they're really good. So why would I not make this instead of one year package? And as the, the time goes by, now what I do is that I cook from the meal plans about a month ahead of my clients. And I fix little things. Sometimes there's typos in the shopping list or mm. I find that, oh, you know, I was suggesting you should do this recipe this way, but it would be more efficient to do it this other way. Or right. once about a, every third plan, I think, oh, I don't like this recipe anymore. Or my husband said he didn't like it. <laughs> and I take it out and I put something new, more easy, more tasty, whatever in, in its place. And it was a bit challenging for me because I had to change my pricing and my whole product architecture on my website. Um, but clearly it freed me because that first year that I was constantly, you know, running after my tail, creating new meal plans, I had very yeah. little time to work on, on growing my audience. And again, as a, you know, my priority is to hang out with my kids and to tend to their needs at the moment. And so I can work during school hours. Um, it was really hard to do anything else. And so now that I just need to update the meal plans, I do it as I go. I can't batch it because I, I can't cook the November meal plans in April because whatever is available seasonal is just not the same. And even if yeah. I could batch it, I don't think I would because <laughs> it's, it's so it, it exhausts me to make all those decisions on the meal plans. So I just update the meal plans as I go. And on a typical week now, I get to spend about a day per week working on the meal plans. I've also started creating mini meal plans, which are basically a spin-off where it's a, just a smaller version of the family plans for people who are just cooking for one or two folks. And mm. the rest of the time I spend now writing blog posts or um, working with podcasts such as yours, um, trying to organize um, online challenges for my participants to spread the word further instead of constantly being on the on the meal plan decision treadmill that was it was really killing me <laughs> not doing this again no for sure um two questions first of all what did you have for dinner today because apparently that's what i'm eating four weeks from now oh um good question i've made a mistake and i cooked tuesday's dinner on sunday night it was uh but i'll say it anyway because it's so good um cocoa peanut noodles are what you're going to have and it's also a recipe that's on the uh the free one week plan that's called planned and plant-based um it's uh, kind of um asian style peanut sauce with lots of vegetables whatever is seasonal in your market and some asian noodles uh soba noodles are a great match or if you have nice you know fresh not packaged uh ramen noodles that's great and uh, sautéed tofu in it, but with that creamy peanut sauce that I, I just can't get enough of it. So that's what you're having in a month. Very much looking forward to this. So <laughs> thanks, thanks for sharing that. And I hope that sounded tasty to the listeners as well. Um, I want to kind of wrap up here, but um, just uh, before we do that, uh, it's really um, relatable for me what you mentioned um, you know, of constantly being on that treadmill. So one thing that I recently started doing is I, I send these weekly emails to people who are on my email list, you know, who want to hear from me. And I've, uh, for a long time now, they've just been articles that I write every week, you know, about something to do with productivity or something that I was thinking about. Um, but it's, it's getting tedious, you know, it's getting tedious to do that every week. 
Um, so I'm experimenting with a different format right now. So uh, I don't know, I guess for the, for the listeners, if, if you're not already on my email list, you can go to my website and sign up and who knows, maybe I'll still be writing articles or maybe I will be <laughs> have a different format. You know, I'm experimenting with a bit of a newsletter format where it's more like mm-hmm. stuff that I'm reading, stuff that I'm watching, stuff that other people told me, just a little, little different. Um, cause like you're saying, like, especially if you're doing the same thing for like a year or more, like at some point you're just, you know. And, and it's like, sometimes we act like the old stuff we did is not good anymore. And that's yeah. not true, right? I mean, those newsletters that you wrote a year ago, maybe the people who are joining your newsletter today would love to read them and benefit right. from it, right? But now it's buried in, you know, the bowels of whatever email management so- software you're using, right? And same thing for the meal plan. There's a company out there that makes vegan meal plans and their food looks amazing and it looks super tasty. And, and they come up, you know, they have a couple of recipe developers that are inventing new vegan dishes every week. And I look at them at the same time, it exhausts me, not just as, a, you know, thinking from the business model standpoint, but also as a cook, I'm like, you want me to learn how to like cook new stuff every week? <laughs> you know, I can't do that. Like, just tell me it's a stir fry and tell me what the ingredients are and I'll cook it. You know, I don't need, I need variety, but not that much. And in the same way, you know, sometimes I reread old books that I read 20 years ago and I'm right. like, holy, this is still good. You know, yeah. and that person could have kept on writing the same book, you know, again, or different books, but the old one is still good. So there, there's value in having some balance there. Um, no, and, for sure. And, uh, and uh, re, re, uh, re-emphasizing older pieces of content that we've created, um, they're still good. Yeah. Absolutely. <laughs> totally agree with it. Now you're making me feel like I, uh, you know, I should create a lot more work for myself by making sure that all my <laughs> new subscribers get to read all my old articles. But uh, yeah. I'll, put, I'll put that on the someday list. I'll put that on the someday list because that sounds like a lot of work to set up. Um, all right, Brigitte. Well, um, after all this talking about food, uh, I hope that people have gotten hungry and also that they want to check out your website. So if people do want to find you, if they want to check out your, um, your free uh, you know, meal plan for one week, where can they find you? Where can they find that? The place to go is veganfamilykitchen.com slash planned, P-L-A-N-N-E-D, veganfamilykitchen.com slash planned. And there's a, it's a five-day challenge where I give people not only the recipes, but also the kick in the pants to get it done as you were mentioning early in the show you know getting some cooking done on the weekend so that you don't need to rely on willpower on the weekdays to get your excellent dinner on the table and uh, a lot of encouragement i'm always available for anybody who's my on my newsletter Um, they can just hit reply and ask me questions about anything i usually don't know the answers but i know people who know them (laughs) and so i can i can connect anybody with any plant-based resource and I'm, I'm just excited to spread the, the plant love message to as many people as possible. So no need to have a family and no need to be vegan to enjoy some, some really good food. I love it. I love it. And I would encourage all the listeners to really think about this in terms of productivity. And that may sound like a joke, but it's, it's really not because oh, yeah. I get so many people telling me like, oh my God, I don't have enough time to do everything. You know, how can I, how can I make more time? How can I be more efficient? And like, I think food is one of those things that a lot of people don't think of that as like, you know productivity and food to completely set, you know if you draw the venn diagram there's zero overlap <laughs> um but i guess what what you're trying to tell us and what you have been telling us is there is in fact some overlap there and it's something worth thinking about so and, I really appreciate and you'll be message. more productive if you're more nourished 
right? But if you're, if you, if to nourish yourself, you have to, you know, um, David Allen getting things done. Mm -hmm. One of his principles when he talks about mind like water, he talks about, you know, let's say you need to bird buy, uh, you to buy bird food, right? And it kind of, it's not that important. You need to buy bird food to, you know, top up your feeder in the backyard, but it bugs you all day long, right? Just write it down and then it will be there when you need it. And to me, food planning was kind of the same where I would spend my whole days, you know, it was always in the, in the back of my mind, you know, what am I going to do for dinner? Right. And, you know, it kind of influences the end of my day after work, I have to, you know, go this way to stop at a grocery store because I'm missing this item and this and that. So having the whole, what am I going to eat and what am I going to cook sorted out releases my mental energy to focus on pursuits that are equally important. It's not that cooking is not important. It is super important, but you don't need to spend that much time thinking about it if you've got it sorted once and for all once a week. Yeah, I think we'll, you know, end there with a David <laughs> Allen inspired message, which is going to appeal to about 99.9% of my listeners. So thank you very much, uh, Bridget, coming for coming on to the show. It's my pleasure. It was super fun. Thank you for the conversation. Hey, if you like the show, subscribe in your favorite podcast app so you'll never miss an episode. We'd also love it if you rated the show on Apple Podcasts. To find out more about Peter or about today's guest, check out the show notes. Thank you for joining us on this episode of How They Get Stuff Done.